Good morning and welcome to St. Paul's. We are so glad that you've joined us this morning, whether you're here in the room or if you're online. If you're going to host a dinner party and you can invite anyone in the world, anyone in history, who would you invite? And excluding the obvious Sunday school answer for Jesus, seriously, who would you invite? I'll give you a second to think about that. At our staff retreat two weeks ago, Jenny answered that she would want to have dinner with Genghis Khan. And she took the words out of my mouth. I was floored. You see, I have this fascination with all things Mongolia. It's a land of blue sky, full of lovely and warm people. And I, I listened to podcasts about Genghis Khan, about how the Mongol Empire was the largest land empire in all history 700 years ago. It went from Korea all the way to Hungary and Bulgaria. They were knocking at the gates of Vienna before a funeral called them home. But all this is reserved for the history books, maybe for history nerds like myself. But even for Mongolians today, Genghis Khan isn't very relevant to their everyday lives other than as a national brand. You know, why would they care? And why would we care about something 700 years ago, right? Something destined for the history pile. That's probably the same question that the first followers of Jesus had when they were studying the writings of Isaiah, what we heard read just now. And so this morning, as Christians here gathered, where we have a faith that is founded on the same scriptures, I want to explore with each of you here how Isaiah, this ancient Jewish writer from the deep, deep past, who lived generations before Jesus and millennia before us, how this Isaiah can tell us something about the meaning of suffering in our lives today. Here at St. Paul's and around the world, Christians are probably most familiar with the life of Jesus, right? We hear about it in the Gospels and the New Testament. And if you're spiritually searching or you haven't, you're still trying to find everything to click in place, at least you know when you come to a place like this, you'll hear about Jesus, but not so clearly in our reading this morning from Isaiah, which was the most important prophet for the nation of Israel. As I said, he lived 700 years before Jesus, and his writings were so important to the daily life of the Jews that he was probably more important than Shakespeare is, us, is to us today. That's how important he was. And over these past few weeks, we've been preaching about these Old Testament images of the cross. Tyler explained philosophy in narrative form with the tree in the Garden of Eden. And then Jenny followed with these two difficult stories of Abraham and the sacrificial son, and then Moses and that bronze serpent. On this side of the cross, we might be able to see how these images point to Good Friday and Easter. But each of those stories, they have an integrity all on their own. Because, you know, they were read, they were studied for those centuries before even Jesus was born, before he was tortured and murdered. So be, before we get into the scripture in Isaiah 53, let's just take a small detour and talk about the prophets. You know, these days we might consider people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Greta Thunberg as modern-day prophets, right? They aren't really fortune tellers, but they show us a vision of the future, good or bad. Martin Luther King Jr. said, 
or he had this wonderful dream of an integrated and unified America. And then on the other hand, Greta Thunberg, she warns us about the consequences of our climate choices. There's good and bad. And in the Bible and for the Jewish people, prophets, they play a similar role. They are not fortune tellers, but they were people who encountered God, and then they spoke on God's behalf. The Jewish prophets cared about this mutual partnership between God and God's people, this nation of Israel. We heard this already. In the past few weeks, God made a promise, a covenant to Abraham, and that's that story two weeks ago with Isaac. And then God, had, he rescued Israel out of Egypt. That's last week's story with Moses. And in all of this, God had invited Israel to become a nation of justice and generosity. A nation that was meant to represent God's character to all the other nations. And when Israel didn't keep their side of the partnership, God sent his prophets to remind them. To remind Israel of their role and responsibility in this partnership. They spoke of God's judgment but prophets also spoke of God's hope. They cared about today, the present, but also what was to come, the future. And so this book of Isaiah that we've been reading to this morning, it follows this pattern where the prophet proclaims God's judgment and also hope for Israel. And several times earlier in the book of Isaiah, we hear that the prophet describes a servant. A servant of God who will be instrumental in sharing this message of judgment and the message of hope. And throughout the books of the Old Testament, God has chosen this nation, Israel, to be his servant. To be the one to share God's blessing to the rest of the world. To bring justice, good news of salvation to all the nations. So who is this servant? Because in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham... In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham, grandfather of Israel, is blessed to be a blessing. Not a blessing just for himself, but a blessing for others. And after Israel is freed from slavery in Egypt, God makes another promise. Israel will be the representative of God to the rest of the world. But Israel, the servant that God had chosen, the, the servant that God had intended... Israel rebelled. They were a nation full of imperfect humans just like us here in the room. And they disobeyed God. They didn't follow the covenant. They didn't follow the promise. They missed out on that partnership. And through the prophet Isaiah, God appoints a new servant. A new servant to complete that mission. And that's where we are now in Isaiah 53. This new servant will restore Israel this new servant will complete God's purposes to share God's blessing to all the people of the world. If this were a baseball game, sorry for the sports analogies, this would all make sense. You know, when your starting pitcher is struggling, the coach comes out to the mound and gives a pep talk, calms everybody down, reminds them of their practice, what their rhythms are, what the things that they know that they should do. But eventually, if the pitcher keeps on missing the strike zone... It's time for a new pitcher. God sent his prophets to Israel to give them reminders, and now this is the time for a new servant. And it isn't surprising because try as she might, Israel was imperfect. 
Israel failed to meet the perfection that was required of God's mission. This perfection is, you, you, we hear it in baseball. There are 21 perfect games, for those that know your, Bible, uh, your, your baseball stats, 21 perfect games pitched in all of his history. And the last one was 10 years ago, 22,000 games ago. Perfection is near impossible. But the big surprise actually in all of this, the big surprise for Israel is that as they study the writings of the prophets and the writings of this prophet, Isaiah, they discover that this servant who is supposed to accomplish God's mission, this servant will accomplish it through suffering. This would be God's suffering servant. And so for Jesus' followers in the first century, this is a shock. They expected the servant of God, the representative of God, to be powerful, just as God was powerful. And they expected if the servant is going to complete God's mission, they assume that the servant will be the same powerful and mighty, just like God. And for all of us here, whether we are longtime followers of Jesus or we're still looking for those answers, we want those powerful superheroes like Marvel and DC. They know what we want. We want these super, superheroes to confront the problems of injustice and evil in this world. So Isaiah 53 isn't surpri is surprising to us because it doesn't make sense why this servant, why God's servant will be despised and rejected. Why will God's servant be a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity? These are not qualities that we look for in our superheroes when the mission is on the line. But as we read more into this description that Isaiah offers in chapter 53, this servant starts to look a little bit less supernatural, a little bit more like us, perhaps. In verse 4, we read here that Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, because this servant wasn't immune to the diseases and ailments of our human condition. This actually, this suffering servant is wounded just like us, but actually it's because of us. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All of these descriptions of the suffering servant, being despised, endearing hardship and oppression, carrying our punishment, they were eventually fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. And so Jesus' earlier, his earliest followers, they started to see that their wise and humble teacher, this Jesus, whose appearance had nothing that we should desire him, this man acquainted with infirmity, this Jesus is actually the same servant that Isaiah had foretold 700 years before. In their 2020 hindsight, the different prophecies of Isaiah, including these ones here that we read, of someone being despised, someone being struck down, someone innocent, they all pointed to Jesus. And Jesus was the one who would accomplish what Israel could not. Jesus would proclaim God's message of justice and good news, the good news of salvations, and he would be the one to do that. But why does the servant need to suffer to accomplish God's mission? Why does Jesus follow this path of suffering? We have this in verse 10 where we read perhaps the most difficult passage. It was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. 
How can it be that the will of God is to inflict such intense pain on God's own son, Jesus? It sounds a bit like cosmic child abuse, as horrific as that story of Abraham told to kill his son, Isaac. And if you've only heard this for the first time, you might be speechless. I'm speechless. I'm trying to imagine the attacks and injuries of every person in history being placed into the one body of Jesus. All the mental anguish and spiritual desolation concentrated and experienced all at once in one person. How can God will this? How can God allow this kind of suffering? And how can the will of the Lord prosper through this kind of suffering? The only answer I can offer is one note that I heard at seminary. The Trinity of God never acts alone. The Trinity of God never acts alone. God the Father willingly gave his son to the suffering. And Jesus the Son... Jesus willingly obeyed the mission towards suffering on the cross. And that's how the will of the Lord, how the will of the Lord will prosper. How it will come to be that Jesus, his obedience to the cross, that's how the mission of God is accomplished. But all of this theology, you know, it's well and good in up here perhaps. But what does Isaiah 53 and this suffering servant tell us about the state of the world? about my life, about your life today. One thing that we can take from Isaiah is that suffering in all its forms, existential questions of purpose, job loss, physical torture, chemotherapy, dementia, broken family relationships, all these different types of suffering, they don't indicate our level of spiritual holiness. When our life circumstances, when they go off a cliff, we aren't less holy, but we aren't any more holy either. Jesus was perfect, and yet he suffered more than anyone, and he suffered for our sake. So instead of a barometer of holiness, Jesus' suffering is solidarity. It's solidarity to our experience of suffering. Jesus knows what we're going through. He is the only one who can truly empathize to the deepest horrors of torture and murder. And in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, the one that we have outside, James Cone writes that the experience of the lynching tree enabled black people to find solidarity in the imagery of the cross, empathizing with Jesus as one who entered into the suffering of the poor and the oppressed. The God that we celebrated a few months back at Christmas, we celebrate God as Emmanuel, God with us. This is the same God who enters into our suffering. The cross means that God doesn't stand far off from our suffering over there, kind of letting us figure it out on our own. God doesn't stand far off, but Jesus accompanies us in our suffering. And even in the middle of that, the relationship of solidarity is still difficult because that suffering isn't yet wiped away. Just like last week, the fiery serpents, they weren't taken away. And Jesus doesn't wipe away suffering, but instead enters into it willingly. 
having somebody accompany you during chemotherapy or having a kind listening ear in the deep parts of your depression, it doesn't necessarily give meaning to suffering. It might help you endure it, might make it bearable, but the suffering is still there. And as the next few weeks are going to show us as we get towards Easter, the suffering of the servant, the torture and murder of Jesus is not the end of the story. Suffering is not a dead end. There is hope. The Korean-American pastor Cyrus Moon Hisuk, who just died a few weeks ago, wrote this. For the new nations... The new revelation that God suffers along with those who suffer. This is that revelation that we read about this morning in Isaiah 53. This revelation will create a way out of the dead end suffering caused by war, destruction, brokenness, and a refugee experience in exile. And what does it do? It will lead us into wholeness, healing, and hope. Suffering is not a dead end. Because as Christians, we can have hope that by joining our suffering to Jesus and by joining our lives to his suffering, there is healing there. So as we look at both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, we can see God has this history. He has this history of salvation from Abraham, Moses, Israel, and now through God's suffering servant, Jesus. We can see God's faithfulness to God's people, Israel but also God's faithfulness to us here gathered as the body of Christ. We can see God's faithfulness that doesn't avoid suffering, but that goes with it, goes with us through it. Thanks be to God.